As I said, we're talking about David's life, um, what made him brave, what, what made him the man that uh, we think of David. And um, tragic moments change us. I think we've, we've felt that a little bit locally. Uh, certainly people are feeling that uh, in the world. Uh, whether it be the things that are beyond your control or the decisions you've made, uh, we are a product um, of, of everything that we experience, positive and negative. Uh, grief changes who we are. Um, it just, you, you become a new person. Um, and, and we think of that as a bad thing, I think, usually. Um, we tend to long for what was. Right? That's our, our uh, human tendency. Uh, there's a song, you might, I suppose it's played every once in a while. I, you know, when, uh, our, our, you know, probably about four or five years ago, it was really popular. And uh, it essentially goes that I, I, I won't sing it for you, uh, but uh, I'll paraphrase it for you. I wish I could go back to when mommy tucked me in bed and read me bedtime stories. Right? That, that was the, the essential song. Uh, maybe that's a, a little bit of a paraphrase, but I wish I could go back to when it wasn't so stressed out. And we longed for yesterday, and that song annoyed me so bad, so bad. Oh, couldn't stand that song. At the same time that I'm being annoyed by this song, I'm, I, I'm also being annoyed by this, this phrase, the new normal. I'm like, no, I don't want the new normal. I want to go back. Wait, wait, what? You want to go back? So I don't really disagree with the song so much as I just disagree to the point at which I, I don't want to go back to where I'm wearing footy pajamas, you know? Uh, I, I want to go back a couple of years, right? It's just really the, the idea. We're all really kind of the same. Just one guy really picked a long time to go back. And, and I just want to go back to, you know, like, like 19-something, 80-something, whatever, high school. It was something when I felt normal, when I felt this was the way that the world ought to be. And we can't. That's just the reality. We can't go back. And so... As we talk about David, David's got some down moments. We, we, we mentioned how, how uh, David did some things that were out of character. When we, we talk about the bravery of, of David, we find some moments in his life where he's not so courageous. Well, we've all done things that are out of character. Right? People who have a, a great character of integrity. Sometimes you, you probably, if you know him well enough, you go, there was a moment where he wasn't, didn't have all the integrity in the world. I remember that time. And uh, I was uh, a friend of mine, uh, he's a Christian, and uh, he knows a lot of people on the police force. And uh, he's like, see, there was a, something going on across the street from his house, South Troy, New York, which is kind of a, a rat hole, uh, where he was living at the time. He's like, see that officer over there? We could put each other in jail about... 12 times each. <laughs> like for, just for the stuff we did in high school. Uh, and uh, people act out of character. And that's the case with David. Uh, so today we're going to, as we talk about his bravery and his greatness, we're going to be talking about his worst moment. Probably on this planet. Because uh, sometimes... Uh, 
It is in those moments that, that our character gets developed, where, where we get changed, where we develop something. And as we're talking about our visible faith and uh, having courage to, to show that and to bring that to the world, we're actually going to, to look at David's worst, to, to see David's best. And so uh, I want to um, turn this on so I see where we're at. Nope. Okay. Well, it doesn't like me today. That's fine. I'll try it one more time. We'll try all of them. Is there something back there that needs to get shot up here? No? Okay. So I'm just going to have to look behind me here to make sure we're together. We're going to turn to 2 Samuel. We talk about stepping up, taking a stand. We talked about our footing, our, our foundation, what we're built on. We want to talk about stepping up. Second Samuel, <clears throat> chapter eleven. And we're going to begin by talking about stupidity. David's stupidity. There's no other way to say this. Chapter 11, verse 1 through 3. <clears throat> this always amuses me. It happened in the spring of the year when kings go out to battle. You know, it's springtime. <laughs> Let's go fight. Um, um, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem, and it happened one evening that David got up from bed, walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Sorry about that. <clears throat> if I was a woman, I'd have eyes in the back of my head, but I am not. The stupidity of this, there's a, there are multiple levels of stupidity here. And some which you might not see as we read this. You notice that the people in the castle notice, know who she is. Right? Before they sent messengers across the street, because that's where she's at, there's no like telescope that he's looking down the other end of Jerusalem with. She's across the street. They said, uh, uh, we know this woman. You really want to be doing that. Because they intrinsically know why he's asking. They're not dumb. He's dumb. They're not dumb. The stupidity of this if you can be viewed 
from the king's property, you are a somebody. Right? You're living in a nice place yourself. You've got, that's expensive real estate to live next to the king's palace. Who is this woman, Bathsheba? Well, she's connected to David in two ways. The idea, first of all, that David doesn't know who she is is ridiculous. David knows exactly who she is. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, Hittite is a guy from Turkey. That's, uh, first of all, he's not natively Jewish. He's a military guy. He's a, he's a bad dude. He's one of 30 people in the country. He's elite forces. He's like a Green Beret kind of person. I mean, if, you, if there was an elite group within the Green Berets, that would be him. That's how bad this dude is. So, so when I read verse 3, and, and they say, Isn't this Bathsheba? I don't read it like, Isn't this Bathsheba? Like, they're like, Isn't that Bathsheba? Are you a moron? Like, you don't want to be messing with her husband. What are you doing? We don't want to be messengers to go across the street. We don't want any involvement in this. I don't want him... <laughs> They don't want to be a part of this. They're trying to cut him off at the, at the past. This is the level of stupidity, but it's not even that stupid. It, it's worse than that. Because it tells us who she is. <clears throat> She's got a father. Her father is Eliam. And that means nothing to you. Eliam is the son of a guy by the name of Ahithophel. Ahithophel is David's closest counselor. The idea, this girl has been in the palace as a little girl. David knows exactly who she is. Grandpa's brought her by. That's a fact. And there is a reason why later on in life, waiting for the right moment, Ahithophel stabs David in the back knot and joins Absalom's rebellion. There's a reason for that. This is the level of stupidity. So let's, let's move on. To, whoa, hello. I must be whack. Let's, let's uh, back up to deceit. You already read? Okay. Let's forget that. Verse 5 through 11. I don't know what's going on up there. So. The woman conceived. She sent and told David, I am with child. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David when... Uriah had come to him. David asked how Joab was doing and how people were doing. And the war prospered and a bunch of small talk. David said to Uriah, why don't you go down to your house and wash your feet? So Uriah departed from the king's house and the gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept on the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, why didn't he go down to his house? 
David said to Uriah, did you come from a long journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? And so it was a level of deceit. We know what the plan is. David thinks he's clever. David's trying to cover some tracks. This kind of is deceit mixed with stupidity. I, I actually don't think that he thought it was going to work. We read this all in the space of a couple of verses, but this didn't take the span of the time it took me to read that verse. Because they're at war in Rabbah, which is 40 miles away, across the Jordan River in the spring when the rainy season has just finished, which is why that's when they go out to war. And so crossing the Jordan, not easiest and not difficult to do. Women don't find out they're pregnant until at least two weeks later. By the time he finds out, sends messengers up there, they find Uriah in the middle of a war, and he comes back down. Someone's going to be able to do some math. <coughs> and somebody's going to figure out that a certain baby don't look Turkish. Right? David's not dumb. And I think he knows this. But he's hoping. And if that doesn't work, someone is going to hear a rumor. Because guess what? There's messengers in the palace who were sent to go over and say, hey, why don't you come over? And someone's going to talk. You just can't. This is why I'm not a big conspiracy theorist. It's because secrets get out there. Everybody would know it. Did you hear what someone said? Yeah. And you alone know. Somehow it reached your ears alone. No, it gets out. <clears throat> Conspiracies are hard to cover up. And David's figuring that out. Hmm, I'm wondering, five weeks later, why my wife is getting sick every morning. He's going to figure some things out. And so we move on to the treason part of this. <clears throat> David said to Uriah, wait here, tomorrow I'm going to let you leave. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And when David called him, he ate and drank in front of him and made him drunk. <laughs> he went out to lie in his bed with the servants of the Lord, but he still wasn't going to go down to his house. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the front of the hottest part of the battle. Retreat so that he will be struck and die. So it was... When they, Joab besieged the city, arranged Uriah in a place where he knew there were valiant men, etc., etc. This is opinion. This is going to be my opinion. Because I don't think you... This event does not unfold like a heat of passion type of a murder, does it? I mean, that happens. 
This unfolds like somebody thinking about it. I, I don't think things were going along one way and the next morning David decided to kill somebody that lived across the street that's been a faithful soldier. I think from the moment he heard, there's been an idea, a backup plan. Because I, I just don't think that people do that. Um, you have to get yourself to that place. You have to get yourself there. To where you'll do something like that. I think this whole thing was plausible deniability. In my opinion, you can have a different opinion. <clears throat> But one thing that's not opinion, this is treason. He's placed the military in a, a difficult position. He's placed the nation in a difficult position. This is the worst. I mean, you can't get worse than this. So having said that, you go, wow. <laughs> Let's talk about David's best. Let's turn to Psalms 51. <clears throat> Have mercy upon me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me and against you and you only have I sinned. I've done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and my sin, in sin my mother conceived me. And behold, you desire truth in the inner parts and the hidden part you will... Make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me. I'll be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquities. And create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. And I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice. Otherwise, that's what I would give. You do not delight in burnt offering. But the sacrifices of God is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, and these, God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness and with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. I didn't read the little bit before. It says, uh, to the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went into him after his affair with Bathsheba. This is what happens after all of that, that we just went through. And we know the story of Nathan coming in and 
the story about the sheep, and he says, this is, you're the man. <laughs> you're the man. And this is his response. First is acceptance. David's prayer at this point is not for relief from consequences. That's what we tend to think about. The consequences of what I've done. Now, he will pray for the child, which will die. But that's not his first prayer. His greatest alarm was losing grace. This chapter mentions his sin by some form directly 11 different times and indirectly a number of others. But verse 4 is interesting to me. Against you and you only have I sinned. Now we just outlined an innumerable number of people that David has sinned against. He's sinned against, obviously, Uriah and Bathsheba, Bathsheba's family honor, and the nation of Israel against Joab as a commander of the army, against his own family. And he's going to get consequences for this. But he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Now that's not technically correct. This is a perspective of acceptance of the reality of the situation though. What he has really done. So often people justify sin. And I know this is not our larger topic. We're going to get to our main, main topic. Or in application. People justify sin by minimizing the consequences, by saying, well, it didn't really hurt anybody. And David accepts the reality of the situation that it's not about the consequences. Sin is not about the consequences. It never is about the consequences. Something could have zero consequences. If it's wrong, it's wrong. Against you and you only have I sinned. It makes no difference what other people have suffered. I've sinned against you. If no human being is affected by something, it makes no difference. It makes no difference if every human being on the planet was affected by something. It still, on the grand scheme of things, doesn't rate compared to what it does to God. And that is the quality way earlier when David was a little teenager that God told Saul, this is a man after my own heart. Knowing what was going to happen, David was a man after his own heart. He was in pursuit of God. He was a man after God's own heart. That's, that's what he sees. So there's acceptance. There's also awareness. There we go. What is important? David hits a point where everything is taken, uh, taken away. And he's been forced to recognize his situation. All his plans 
one by one come crashing down. Every, everything that he's thought, oh, I'm so smart, has come crashing down. And it continues, by the way. Those consequences did come. His family is just mimics him and worse. And he is forced to recognize his situation. A lot of people are not like David, faced and confronted with error, they will not acknowledge it. Just not going to acknowledge it. Nope. But he does. And it becomes one of the most poignant of his psalms. So he recognizes in his awareness what he needs. What do, what do I need? Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. He needs God's grace. That's the first thing. Second thing. He needs the presence of God. And this comes out uh, a couple of ways in verse 11. First of all, and, and we're going to talk about these more in the second half of the year. We're going to kind of come back when we talk about the, our inward faith. Spirituality. But he talks about God's presence, God, a relationship with God, what that means. And we want to talk a lot more about that. Uh, so we're going to have a series of sermons devoted to that topic. And the influence of the Holy Spirit, which we're also going to have a series devoted to that topic. He recognizes these as things that he cannot do without. The next thing, he needs God's wisdom. In verse 6, he says, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. In the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Truth begins inside. That's called integrity. And again, that's, that's a, something internal. But it becomes external. Integrity is something that is visible eventually. It begins in our, our personal faith. And, and finally, he recognizes his need for renewal. In verses 8 through 10, he says, Make me hear the joy of gladness so that the bones you've broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Our position with God must first be corrected. Then our attitude, second, is brought back into alignment. And then this results in the restoration of our emotional health. That's the order. You can't try to fake the emotional, make it till, fake it till you make it stuff. That's nonsense. Make it. And you don't have to fake it. He needs renewal. Real renewal. 
And this is where we come to our point. We've been talking about visible faith. And so far we've been talking about sin and repentance and, and all these things. And stupidity and a bunch of things. And, and, and what does this have to do with my visible faith? What does this have to do with any of that? This is what it has to do with that. We come then to his assignment. We come to the end of this. This last section of this chapter, he deals with his public declaration of his faith. In a couple of ways. Verse 14 and 15. He says, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. So he, he has this, this openness that he's looking forward to. A lack of embarrassment about what he believes. When you know you're wrong, it's hard. When you know you're in the wrong, it's hard to publicly declare something. There's a, there's a, a natural hesitance. Because we have a natural hesitance as humans to avoid hypocrisy. We don't like feeling like a hypocrite. And so what we tend to do is avoid it. Oftentimes, instead of the harder job of fixing the problem, we just avoid the problem. Verse 13. He then has a purpose. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. He gets a mission. His evangelization comes from that. Um, if you are familiar with 12-step programs or 8-step programs or whatever the programs. The last step is always, in some phraseology, giving back to others. Doing something that is effective for other people. Something that benefits other people. Some way that you give back based on the journey that you've taken. And one of the things, having worked with some of these programs before, that you get trained to hear is when people come in to a program and they're just hearing step one for the first time. And all of a sudden, they're talking about wanting to help other people. That's avoidance. That's them not wanting to think about their own things and... God says that differently. He says, don't think about the speck in somebody else's eye when you've got a big problem in your own. Take care of yours. Then you help others. When the mask falls from the plane, you put yours on first, then you help somebody else. Right? That, that's just how we're supposed to do it. David puts this last. David's got to deal with David first before he can teach transgressors their ways. Because no one's going to pay attention to David. 
He's going to have a hard enough time as it is. Because we're going to say, aren't you the guy that just killed Uriah? Yeah, that was me. But until he repents, he's going to have no luck whatsoever. This is not really about our sin. It is about that. That's not the main point that I'm trying to drive. But that is a part of it. In our public faith, whatever the obstacle, whether it's sin or something else, We've got to address our own situation first. We're not going to be productive as a church until we've worked on our own self first. Whatever the obstacle is, it may be sin. He says, there is a statement in here I think that's important for us. He says, don't remove your Holy Spirit from me. We got to start with the Holy Spirit before it can be taken away from you. Right? If you haven't begun with the Holy Spirit, that's where we start. You got to deal with yourself before you can go out there and deal with other people's need for God. If you haven't become a Christian, telling other people about it ain't going to do anything. They're going to ask, what about you? That's David's problem. First, I've got to address me. Then we'll help other people. Maybe you have gotten off the path. Maybe it's not sin. Maybe it's just, I don't know, it could be anything. Busy life. Whatever the things are that come up. A lack of focus on other people. Focus on all my own things happening. We have to step up. That's a part of taking a stand. The world uses that phrase, step up. It signifies that there's a task to do and you're the man. Right now, in the place where you are, or the woman, you're the person to do it. Taking a stand is stepping up to your task. That only you can do. I can't can't step up to your task. I can't step up to the people you know. You can introduce me to them, I suppose. But I don't have a relationship. I've got to do all that work of developing the relationship with them. You don't. And it takes courage. All of these tasks take courage. They do. It takes courage to open up your mouth. It takes courage to be open. It takes courage to try to convince people of something. Our public faith takes courage. And the reality is, one of the things we need to learn from David is that stepping up actually begins 
with one place. Stepping up means falling on your knees first. That's where David's greatest moment was. David's greatest moment in his life, to me, is right here. It wasn't some of the other events that we think about. It was David's willingness in his heart to fall on his knees and acknowledge, accept where he was and what he needed. 